Hi, my name is Kevin McDonald, and I'm declaring my independence. Independence from what? Why, negative thoughts and energy, of course. Chief among them, hate, division, and fear. You see, I know that we're all one, and together we can solve any problem, save our planet and each other. Please, join me as we come together as one and choose a better way to be. So now, let's begin with my independence report. And welcome to the show, everybody. You're listening to My Independence Report. And I, you know, I say this a lot, but it's not often that I get to have somebody on the show that really, really deserves the accolades that we're going to talk about and I'm going to give him throughout the show because he is a phenomenal psychic medium. He's also a Oxford-trained lawyer. I don't know how that works. The man's been in school like his whole life. And he is uh, a nationally known psychic medium. He's got a couple of books out that we're going to talk about, and we're going to talk about him. His name is Mark Anthony. He's called the Psychic Lawyer, and here he is right now. Mark, how are you? I'm doing great, Kevin. Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, you have no idea. This is It's just, first of all, being a lawyer and being a psychic medium, aren't those things like one right, right brain and one left brain? Of that they are, but but, you know... You have to have an integrated approach to anything in life, I think, not just uh, not just our everyday lives, but also our spirituality. And what I've found, Kevin, is that my work as an attorney and my work as a medium both revolve upon evidence. And certainly everyone knows that a, an attorney has to have evidence in order to substantiate and prove his or her case. And as a psychic medium... I practice what is known as evidential mediumship because when I connect with spirits and the spirits begin transmitting information to me, I have to get specific details and things about the spirit to verify that he or she is, you know, first off, who it is, and then that these are things that I couldn't possibly know ahead of time. And so I found that both jobs revolve upon evidence. Also, both jobs revolve upon helping people. Uh, I know how many people feel that lawyers are these vampiric, blood-sucking monsters that come into your life and destroy them, but people also have to keep in mind, why do you go to a lawyer? It's probably because you painted yourself in a corner, either financially or you've gotten arrested or someone's suing you or you need some type of help, and sometimes uh, it takes takes, uh, some forceful action to get you out of that. I never liked the victory at any cost. And um, I think that the problem with the legal system is is ethics gets shoved to the side in favor of winning. And so from that aspect, I can see why people have an unfavorable view uh, of lawyers. But um, they are, we are an essential part of, of our society. And also, we are here to help people get through some of the most painful and difficult ordeals of their lives. I will tell you this, um, because I was sued at one at one point, and with you need to have a lawyer represent you because even the language within the lawsuit itself, each word means something, and if you don't know what that means, you can get into a world of trouble and not even know you're there. Oh, absolutely. Well, I you know I'm practicing mediumship full time now, uh, and. Um, 
um, on the, the Mark Anthony 2020 Visionary Tour. So I'm going to be going from coast to coast, uh, from Florida to Washington State. But we, we have events booked uh, nationwide and more being added to, to the tour on a daily basis. And it is, it's, it's very important, um, back when I was practicing law, to keep in mind that you have to help people. And a lot of people would come to me and they would say ridiculous things like, well, why do I need you? I can just go handle it myself. Now, there's an old saying that a person who represents himself has a fool for a lawyer and a jackass for a client. And let me tell you something. You know, people say, well, I can handle this myself. Well, if you needed to take out your appendix, would you do it yourself? No, you go to somebody who knows the language, who knows the personalities involved, who understands the rules. Um, you know, I, I remember seeing a, a bit that Jerry Seinfeld did once. It cracked me up. He said, life is like the game of Monopoly, except that the lawyers actually read the inside cover of the box. You know where the instructions are. <laughs> That's right. And so, so and, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mark. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, let's let's set the lawyer stuff aside because uh, we can go talk to somebody else about that. You have got a unique gift that we're going to talk about today, and that is as a psychic medium. And you've written a couple of books, one of which is Evidence of Eternity, and uh, the other one is Never Letting Go. And both of these books are, are, and I've gone through the reviews of them, and the people that are reviewing them are saying some wonderful things about how you are being of service when you are doing your mediumship. And I know that's how you feel about it. Am I correct in that? Absolutely. Uh, I was born a psychic medium because a lot of people ask, well, how did you get into that? It's not that I got into that. It's that I was born into it. And the thing that I have have learned is that this is a genetic trait. Uh, both my parents had these abilities. And so I started to track these through my family. And on both sides, I was able to, to identify people with psychic abilities going back at least to the 1890s. And it, it's logical to conclude that there were people before that, except that you know their their the records beyond that time are, are very fragmentary. And yeah, I know that there's a lot of people that you know social media gives gives uh, cowards a chance to be bullies. People are always writing, oh, the book of this and the Bible says that and blah blah blah. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the thing is, we all have differing abilities. I mean, there was a time when if you were left-handed. In the medieval world, that was looked at as a sign of evil. Okay, so right. you have to have to put, you know, take all that with a grain of salt. Um, what I do is is a gift. I do believe in God. I believe this is a gift from God, but I don't, you know, certainly don't go around like, oh, I have a gift from God. We all have gifts from God. In fact, in uh, 1 Corinthians, I believe it's uh, 4, uh, 12, verses 4 through 12, there's a, a whole list of gifts from God that are gifts of the Spirit, which include prophecy and discernment of spirits, which is what I do. And even in the book of Deuteronomy, I think it's um, Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 through 22, 
basically the standard for what comes through a prophet, meaning a, a psychic medium, is what if it's from God or is whether or not it's true. And and so even though there's people who like to take the salad bar view of the religion where they get to pick and choose what Bible verses or, or pieces of scripture they want to fling at you to sit in judgment of you, by the way, that's that's prohibited too, but it doesn't seem to bother them. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, so right. the, the people that cast the first stone, they're all full of judgment. It's like, well, assuming for the sake of argument that what I'm doing is wrong, Explain to me where in the belief system that you claim to follow does it authorize you to sit in judgment of me? That's reserved for God, but that's, that's another another issue altogether. The so, thing whole is, another conversation. That's a whole another conversation. There are certain traits which run in in everybody's families. Okay, like for example, in in um, left handedness. We we're just talking about that. Left handedness is genetic. But one out of every ten people, more or less, uh, is left-handed. Um, like in my family, most people have brown eyes and brown hair, but there are people that it skips a couple generations that have blonde hair and blue eyes. And so it's the same thing with intellectual and athletic abilities. And people with psychic abilities, this is a genetic trait. And so I had two parents that each had this trait, and so, therefore, the likelihood of one of their offspring, meaning me, having that uh, trait is is increased. So, so this is something that I was born into. It was always there. My parents were really good about it because when they saw it emerging when I was about three and a half, you know, about three and a half to four, they they didn't chastise me uh, uh, over it. They they just told me you can talk about it to us, talk about it to us, but but. Outside the house, people don't understand. As I got older, I began to see what they meant by that. So, so that, in a nutshell, is you know when people ask me, "Well, how did you become a psychic medium?" It's like I came that way. <laughs> it's like that—that that was part of the. You know, it's, it's not like I went to the grocery store one day and came back, "Hey, mom, I'm psychic." You know, it's—I it's, was born this way. It was part of the box, part of the package. It was part of the package, and it certainly did make for an interesting. Uh, childhood, especially like, you know, it, it's funny because I would go over friends of mine, uh, my friends' houses, and the type of things that they talk about at the dinner table were not the type of things we talked about. <laughs> you know, it's like we'd be talking about spirit communication, the afterlife, reincarnation, all this sort of stuff. And, and my mother was, um, was a very, uh, devout Catholic because her family was from Italy, and so they were very, um, and the Italian side of the family looked at this as a, definitely a gift, and the gift of second sight. And my dad's family, they were um, from Pennsylvania, and they were Baptists. In fact, my great-grandfather on, on, my, father's, uh, on my father's paternal side um, was a Baptist minister. But they looked at it um, as something that one did not speak of in public. So it was right. a, a bit more, you know, clandestine. Well, that's how they dealt with things back in those days. It's called denial. Uh, and it's, well, and, 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 well, and the thing is, it wasn't so much denial as um, the social stigma of, of talking about this in a a small town in Pennsylvania could could have some pretty severe repercussions. So it's very, very important. For people, and I had this discussion actually yesterday, Kevin, 
I did a reading uh, for this couple, and they said that their four-year-old girl, and it actually came through the reading, the, the spirit of uh, this little girl's grandfather came through and started saying that he comes to her. And they're like, oh, my gosh, that's what she says. She keeps describing grandpa. And they said, how do we deal with this? I said, well, first off, it's not something that you deal with. It's something that that you tell her to talk to you about, um, have her draw pictures. What is she seeing? Don't chastise her. Don't make her feel that it's scary, but also tell her that she should just talk to you about it. Because even in this day and age, if you go around saying that you see and hear things other people don't, it's not always looked at as... No, that's when the medication comes out. Yeah, it does. Um, And there have been people throughout history, I mean, in uh, in the Islamic world, uh, in many countries, people with my abilities are put to death. Um, Yeah, Saudi Arabia has people... Um, who are accused of sorcery, which is what they consider this to be, to be beheaded. And um, the thing is, I've done a lot of readings for people of the Muslim faith who come to me because they're saying, I'm sorry, but you know, reading the Quran isn't helping us uh, in our grief. And the same thing, I have people that are quote-unquote evangelical born-again Christians who come to me because they said, you know, try as I might, the scripture isn't helping me. And it's not that it isn't helping you, it's that the problem with with a lot of religions, and and the thing is, I'm a big proponent of religion if people would actually practice what it teaches, which is peace, love, and understanding. Instead, it turns into, well, let's, let's worship the messenger, be it Jesus or Muhammad, and then that gives us the authority to judge everyone else. And that's, <clears throat> that's not, not the point of these, these faiths. What it is... Well, especially if... If you, if you look at if you look at what Jesus actually said, according to the Bible, if you look at what he himself, the words that came out of his mouth, it, it oftentimes has nothing to do with the religion that has surrounded him. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh, does it? I had a, um, a discussion recently with an evangelical Christian, and we had a long, um, well. I don't even know if I want to use intellectual, but we had a long conversation about this. And she said that, um, well, it doesn't matter that the teachings of Jesus don't matter because there never was supposed to be a Bible. The Bible was created centuries after after Jesus uh, was here. What's important is that he came down off the cross, rose from the dead to make us good with God. The teachings are secondary. And I'm sitting there listening to this like, wow. You, so, so this is how in, I, I'm going to call it religious fanaticism, how they warp this. Okay, the teachings of Jesus do not matter. It's just the fact that he rose from the dead, and that's why he did, because that way now we're good with God, you know, because he, he uh, died uh, for our sins. Well, I have spent my life studying theology, archaeology, and ancient history. And pretty much all of the ancient world's belief systems have the young, heroic God who dies, and usually at the hands of evil, and then returns to life. Like in ancient Egypt, it was uh, Osiris was struck down by the evil god Set, and then through the help of Mother Isis, rose from the dead. 
Uh, the Babylonians had the god Bel Marduk, who struck down, rose from the dead. The Greeks had, uh, I believe it was Adonis, and also then you have um, the story of um, who's the guy that went to went down to to hell uh, to get his wife back. Um, um, gosh, Orpheus. Oh, Greek mythology. Orpheus. Oh, yeah, Greek that's right. And then. And then you have the Nordic religion, and the Nordic religions. Uh, I always, to me, the Vikings were are, were like the Klingons of the ancient world. You know, they're like <laughs> this warrior culture and all that. And they had the god of peace and light, Baldur, and Baldur was immune to all forms of weapons. And so, when Baldur would show up at their version of Heaven Valhalla, the other gods would throw spears and, and knives and things at him um, because it was fun. But their evil god, Loki, who could assume different forms, got Baldur's brother, who was blind, and tricked him into shooting him at him with an arrow that was tipped in mistletoe. And the one thing that Baldur wasn't immune to was mistletoe. So Baldur dies. And the gods are all upset. And, of course, Loki, who later on becomes associated with Lucifer, um, the mother of Baldur goes to the goddess of death whose name was Hell so and persuades Hell to restore the life of Baldur who rises from the dead on the third day wow when we start looking at all of these religions you begin to see reoccurring patterns and I'm not faulting any of them what this means is I believe that it's a metaphor that the light overcomes the darkness, even though um, you cannot destroy the light, you can only block it, and that it doesn't matter whether or not your God returned from the darkness. What we have to focus on is the core of the enlightened teachings, which are about peace and love and understanding. Um, People tell me constantly, well, think of all the wars that have been uh, fought in Jesus' name. Yeah, but did he ever say that? In, find me in his teachings nope. where he says, go kill those who are different. Nope. It, he, he said love those. Love those. Love your enemy. Put down your weapons. Talk to them. And and um, I actually, I mean, I'm working on my next book, and I was doing some research on Islam. And I know that that's a hot topic, especially now in light of what's going on with us in Iran and all that. But in Islam, it talks about, you know, understanding your enemy who will become your friend. And and so, (laughs) so when you start looking at all of these religions, they're not about warring upon other people, with the possible exception of the Viking gods, because, you know, they were Klingons. But, but, um, and I'm being facetious there. Uh, but 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 the universal message throughout all of the major belief systems is one of peace. And uh, Jesus held the bar very high for us, and he said, "Be better than me, okay? Not worship me, and by worshiping me, you get to ignore what I'm teaching you." That's not what he was saying. I can't believe I can't believe that this person would actually even go there because that's. If, if you take away Jesus' teachings, then I, there's no religion. I mean, that that is isn't that the basis of the religion that's there is the teachings of Jesus and love and peace. And he was he hung out with uh, Pharisees or he hung out with uh, tax collectors and prostitutes because 
those are the people that needed him. And right. He, that's how, yeah. yeah, a healthy man needs not a physician. Okay, and Jesus ministered uh, to the, the people who were downtrodden and sick and poor and disenfranchised. And, you know, the, this this is where, um, and, and Buddha, Buddha was the same. But what I always found mm-hmm. fascinating is the parallels between the life of Jesus and the life of Buddha. Um, Buddha was from a royal family who gave it all up to to seek enlightenment, and he went out into the wilderness and sat under a tree for, I think it was 40, 40 some odd days, 40 like nine days and nights, and he was tempted by Mara, who was the lord of illusion. And Mara tempted him with images of naked women and, and riches and all this. Um, and Jesus rejected the temptations of earthly pleasures instead to seek the light and and enlightenment. And conversely, Jesus was a descendant of the house of King David through his mother Mary. It says this in Matthew, the book of Matthew. And um, so Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and Satan tempts him with wealth and riches. I mean, we're seeing a parallel story here, and Jesus rejects all of those. Now, the literalists believe that actually there's an entity called Satan um, or Lucifer and has many different names and came and actually tempted him. But when you start looking at the way Jesus taught through metaphor and through parable and the way Buddha taught through metaphor and parable and also the way um, the Hindu traditions of metaphor and parable, um, perhaps what the devil actually is is the human ego edging God out, where your focus is materialism, pleasures of the flesh, self-centeredness, aggression, me, me, me. Me is the center of the universe, and by always focusing on me and my earthly pleasures, think about whenever any of us, and I'm, I'm, I'm inviting the, the readers to ask this of them, I mean the readers, the listeners, to ask them of, this, of themselves as well, Whenever you've done anything negative, has it been because it was out of love for another person or were you acting in a totally self-centered manner? And I think that very well may be the metaphor for what the devil actually is because it's hard to to believe that God, the, the supreme creative energy that, that, that is the source of everything, would in would create a negative entity to fight with and eventually vanquish, a lot like a Viking myth, um, because that that just, it's, I'm sorry, but, and please forgive me if those who are listening, that's just ridiculous. Okay, what we have to vanquish, the negativity, is within ourselves, and it is by putting the self to the side and 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 acting out of love for our fellow humans, that is the path to enlightenment. And that is not an easy thing to do. No, it's not. But uh, by the way, is that is that the subject of your next book? I hope it is, because it would be a fascinating subject. Um, actually, I touch upon that in, in my last book, Evidence of Eternity. Uh, the, um, my, my books, the first book, Never Letting Go, is, is a guide on the journey through grief. And people say, well, never letting go, 
other grief counselors tell me that you have to get to the point of letting go. I take a different view on that. What you have to let go of is the sorrow, the anguish, the guilt, all the painful emotions associated with the death of the person that you love. But never let go of the love that you have for that person. And You're here. Yeah, and, and that, that works so much better. Because to say you have to let go, you can't, you won't. Tell a parent who's lost a child, oh, just let go of your child. No, what you have to do is to learn to let go of why didn't I do something different? Why did he or she have to die? You know, the, the, you know, how can I go on feeling so miserable? Okay, the, and, and, and this can take years, years to get to that point, but never, ever let go of the love for the person who has passed. My book, Evidence of Eternity, while I was on the Never Letting Go tour, Kevin, people kept asking me all sorts of questions about, is there a scientific basis for this? Um, do animals have souls? My son died from suicide. Did he go to hell? Is there a hell? Is there a God? Is there, you know? And so I compiled all those questions and I developed never let, uh, excuse me, evidence of eternity to bridge the gap between the spiritual and the scientific through um, not only evidential mediumship, but quantum physics, science, and explaining uh, the afterlife in those terms because faith and science are not mutually exclusive. In the new book I'm working on, I'm taking the quantum physics aspect even further to explain the afterlife and, and near-death experiences, shared death experiences, spirit communication on the basis, basis of quantum physics. But the way I write, I promised you all the listeners and all my readers and potential readers do not expect a dry dissertation. I sat through so many boring classes in law school, and I spent years reading the most boring, dry, um, horrific <laughs> um, uh, technical manuals, and I always said, if I write a book, I'm not doing that to anyone. So I explained the concept, but then I illustrate it with fast-moving, gripping, and, and uh, at times funny stories because it's important. My philosophy on teaching and, and in the lectures and the speeches that I give, I call it edutainment. I want to educate yet entertain because no one wants to sit there and watch trigonometry on stage. Absolutely. By the way, we're talking with Mark. Anthony, he is the psychic lawyer. Go to his website, which is www.evidenceofeternity.com. Again, he's got two books out. You can pick them up at Amazon or any major bookseller. Uh, Never Letting Go and Evidence of Eternity. Mark, I have a question to ask you that I've been dying to ask you this whole time, and that is this. I, amongst others, are seeking what happens when we die but and I've got all these theories rolling around in my head about how it works and and stuff. But I don't know. You know what's it like to know? Uh, it's extremely comforting, um, exciting, and humbling. And also, it continually provides or poses additional questions. Um, 
on the most basic level, <clears throat> we all know that uh, from from the, the laws of thermodynamics, energy is neither created nor destroyed, only transferred from one form to another. We all anyone that's made it to eighth grade has heard that. Okay? Yeah. And that's a law of physics, the law of conservation of energy. And uh, energy is neither created nor destroyed, only transferred from one form to another. Then there is the debate over consciousness. Does the brain create consciousness, or did consciousness pre-exist the body? Well, consciousness is what people in the realm of psychology and science call what people of faith refer to as the soul or the spirit. And every belief system, religion, teaches that the soul pre-exists the body, comes into the body, and then goes to an afterlife when the body no longer functions. Well, doesn't that sound a lot like energy is neither created nor destroyed, only transferred from one form to another? Then the cynics and the uh, skeptics jump in and start saying, yeah, well, the energy may leave, but it doesn't stay coherent. It's just sort of a... Uh, uh. I've heard people say, well, it just sort of, you know, like goes somewhere and it just doesn't... And it's like, wow, they, they, they you know, they're claiming they, they believe in science, but then they can't even articulate why they think consciousness doesn't stay coherent. Let me tell you something, uh, Kevin. I've done readings for well over 15,000 people in my life. And let's say five spirits per person come through. And I'm just, and that's on the low end, all right? Maybe maybe 10. I did a reading once where I had 24 spirits come through for this one lady. Uh, 21. They were having a party. Well, it was 21 people, two dogs, and Rusty the horse. Um, And... (laughs) So so I've probably communicated with close to about 100,000 spirits. They seem awfully coherent <laughs> to me. <laughs> and and what it is, it's because the electromagnetic field, electromagnetic field within your brain, and this is not some airy-fairy theory. We know the brain has an electrical field. The body has an electrical field. And the brain hosts the consciousness. So I like to tell people that they should think of their brain as a computer hard drive. And who or what and what we are is the computer programs and the data that's on that hard drive. And then when the hard drive crashes, you get uploaded to, you know, the cloud or, you know, Dropbox, depending on what religion you're part of. That's a joke. But but the thing is the consciousness stays coherent. This coincides with the last forty years of survival of consciousness and near-death experience research, because in NDEs, near-death experiences, and I had one when I was a when I was a child. Um, you you physically die, your consciousness separates from your body, and these have been tracked and quantified all over the world. Um, my my good friend Dr. Jeffrey Long started Enderf, the Near Death um, Research Foundation. And for people who believe they've had a near-death experience, please go to Enderf, N-D-E-R-F dot, dot, I think it's dot org, and you can um, add your account to the database. And what they're seeing, they meaning afterlife researchers, near-death experience researchers, the same type of phenomenon the world over. I mean, there's even doctors from Iran, from Korea, from China, from India, uh, from non Christian, non-Western countries reporting the same phenomenon 
as people from the U.S., Western Europe, and South America. I think this is very exciting. Uh, so, so we are seeing now, and I believe that it is technologically within our grasp, and I know to, to create technology capable of communicating with spirits. I mean, I'm that technology, and people or mediums are that technology, uh, but for cynics and skeptics, you know, don't, don't want to believe that. And the reason that I know that this technology is imminent is my friend and colleague, Dr. Gary Schwartz of the University of Arizona, is working on the Soul Phone Project. And let me tell you something. We're going to be hearing a very big, big revelation in, in the field of afterlife communication through technology in the not-too-distant future. Wow. That'd be awesome. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, I have mixed feelings about it. I'm like totally excited, can't wait for it to happen, and then it's like, wow, that could put me out of a job. But I don't, I don't know if we're going to be like, you know, walking around with like cell phones and well, let me go to the Afterlife app. Bloop. Hey, mom, how you doing? Fine, honey. Your life on the other side. I don't know if that's, you know, maybe someday, but I don't think that's going to be happening right away. Um, but, but I think that that we are. We are in a new and exciting century, and provided the lunatics that run the countries in the world don't blast us into atoms, I think that this century could be an amazing, amazing one of, of uh, incredible revelations and discoveries. I, I, I feel that the vibration of the planet, and especially with 2020 upon us, and now that we're into 2020, the vibration of everybody, it seems to be, if you allow it, it seems to be like your individual vibration and the vibration of everything. We're coming to a head. I don't know if you watch the news lately, but we're coming to a head one way or another. And I think the for those that are um, allowing it to happen, the vibration is raising up. I do have a question for you, though. Yeah. Um, my father passed away in 2004 while he was on his deathbed. And uh, I've talked to hospice people. And they tell me that this is kind of a, something that happens on a regular basis. But he had had a stroke. His uh, right hand, he could not use anymore. He could not swallow. He could not speak. But while he was lying there, he suddenly, a bright, his, his eyes lit up. And he took his arm and he raised it to the ceiling and started to um uh babble a little bit and we we couldn't understand what he was saying and he was like looking off into where the corner of the room was but there was nothing there there was no tv there was no people there was no nothing was he was was, was the veil thinning for him and absolutely. the people on the other side were coming to greet him absolutely in fact um going into that very phenomenon very heavily in the the book I'm currently writing and this is one of the newest aspects, or or I'll say most recent aspects in the field of near-death experiences is what is known as shared death experiences and deathbed visions. So let's let's term this as what it what it most likely was was a deathbed vision, where he was what what was going on, the energy of his soul of his consciousness was accelerating. And the vessel that he's in was no longer able to handle that amount of energy. So the other side, the spirits connected to him, 
are aware of this, and that's why he was able to perceive them. Because a dying brain does not diminish one's soul or one's spirit, because the brain is just the computer hard drive that begins to malfunction and eventually shut down, but the energy within it um, is neither created nor destroyed, only transferred from one form to another. So what happens there is that his brainwave frequency is increasing. The spirits on the other side begin to lower their frequency so you get a frequency match. It's also very similar to what I do as a medium. I raise my brainwave frequency so that I can um, align it with spirits who are slowing theirs down. It's like tuning into a radio. Um, and, And so they were doing that. And this is a very typical thing in in uh, in in situations where somebody is dying, where they will begin to talk to or to reach out, and sometimes there's even terminal lucidity, where somebody who was maybe uh, completely unconscious, unresponsive, uh, brain tumors, brain uh, brain damage, will in their last few moments coherently communicate with people. And this defies medical and scientific explanation because somebody with Alzheimer's or someone who has severe brain damage in the last hours or moments of life does not suddenly grow a billion new neurons in their brain. (laughs) Okay? And, And, yeah, and so this has to do with the energy surge as their soul is beginning to emerge from that hard drive that we call the brain. So, yes, what your father experienced, there is scientific basis for that, and this is beginning to be the focus of the shared death experience um, realm of near-death experience studies. Because heretofore, these things have been reported for centuries, but the social stigma of talking about it has put a damper on it, but now, now people are beginning to discuss these things openly. And I've got, uh, so speaking of which, <clears throat> next time I have you on, we are going to set it up so that we can take some calls so that you can do some readings. Is that all right? That'd be great. Yeah. Um, now, now, just out of curiosity, my dad doesn't have anything, you know, like he wants to, you know, like, I don't know, you know, say, I don't know. <laughs> Um, what's funny is um, four o'clock, four o'clock, four o'clock, four o'clock. I have no idea, but I keep seeing a clock that says four o'clock, four o'clock, four o'clock. So I don't know if there's any significance with maybe when he passed or something with you with four o'clock or the number four, which could be April or the fourth of any month. But he keeps giving me four o'clock, four o'clock. Does that make any sense to you? Um, it might be um, the time of his death, which was like 4 o'clock in the morning. There you go. Okay, so if he died at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I'm hearing 4 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 4 o'clock, and I know a lot of psychics talk about feathers, okay, and I'm not one of these, uh, you know, pulls out the feathers and the butterflies, but he keeps showing me it's weird because it looks like um, it looks like a bird. I mean, obviously, it's a bird's feather, but it looks like it's gray, black, and white, and it's like kind of the middle. It, it's a long feather, like one you'd see on uh, on a larger bird, and like the center part of it, there's part of it missing. So I don't know if there's any significance to you, some type of sign, 
of of a fairly large feather. So it's like about six inches long, and part of it in the middle seems to be worn away or damaged. I know that sounds odd, but I've always found that the odder the better. Yeah, <laughs> uh, then nothing comes to mind. But as as what happens oftentimes when you do a reading, um, it, what your your meaning becomes clear after the reading's over. It's called the unfolding, and that's a chapter in in the new book. I, I explain to people: think of the reading like a a um, the bud of a flower, and after the reading, that bud begins to open. It unfolds. And then you'll start realizing things. Just out of curiosity, is there anyone, I know that we all know somebody named Don or Donald, but is there someone connected to you or your dad with a name like Don or Donald? It could be Daniel, but um, I keep getting Donald, Donald, Donald. Yes. 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 In what way? He, he was my, he is, he's still with us. He is uh, my best friend in high school. Okay. Well, your dad's talking about Donald, so maybe that means give him a call. <laughs> you know, say hi. <laughs> No, you know what it could mean. Um, and and it, oh, I'm, do you ever get chills when when things <laughs> like, like the hair yeah. on the back? Of, um, he and I won't use his last name, but uh, his wife was terminal, and he took her life. Ended up going to jail for eighteen months for involuntary manslaughter. So I don't know if it's his wife coming through to say. Interesting. Something. So I wonder if the feather image may apply to Donald. That may be something be. That, that could be for him. So, wow. That's, uh, you know, wow, that's, that's a whole question, too. And you say he took her life. I am assuming he didn't brutally murder her. He probably um, helped her no, shot her. transition. Oh, he did. Yep, she was like uh, right in, in the head, uh, in the chest. Wow! Now that that it was now that, that's very unusual because normally when people do things like that, they will help people transition by administering drugs. Now he may be the type of person that if he shot her in the chest, he wanted to make sure that this was going to be a clean break for her and i am not for one second all the listeners and anybody advocating anybody do this i'm just discussing it okay um because first off it's illegal secondly there's moral uh implications to this um but um it it it, i still get the feeling that he did not do this out of malice or out of brutality no, she was she was terminal, and she'd come back from hospice, and she was in a great deal of pain, and and that's why uh, he only got he got such a short sentence. They had to give him something, but they gave him a short sentence because it was they viewed it more of a mercy killing. And you're right, I don't advocate that either. Let God take people in their own time. Correct. Yes, it is not for us to. Uh, once again, it's not for us to uh, judge, nor is it to deal. You know. What was there? There was a line in in Lord of the Rings, and what's fascinating: a lot of people don't realize that the author of Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. R. Tolkien, was a very devout Catholic. And even though he was uh, an expert in Norse uh, mythology, there's a lot of um, Christian type concepts, and there's a 
a uh, passage, and they even did this in, in the movie The Fellowship of the Ring, where Gandalf is talking to Frodo, um, and they're talking about Gollum, and he goes, oh, they you know, basically should have killed Gollum years ago. And Gandalf said, don't be so quick to deal out death and judgment. He said, we all have our parts to play. And I always found very, yeah, and Gollum, the most despicable, one of the most despicable creatures or the most despicable in the whole story in the very end. If it weren't for Gollum, then the, the evil of the ring would never have been destroyed. And so here we think this character is villainous, which he is, but it was only because of this character that actually vanquished the negativity. Now, certainly that that is yet another metaphor and that was um, perhaps the intent of J.R.R. Tolkien that we must be very careful about sitting in judgment of other people and saying who lives and who dies and this and that because we every life counts, every life matters. And it's very easy to look at somebody downtrodden or a homeless person or someone begging and say, Oh, they're you know, they're they're beneath me. Are they? Are they? No. <laughs> exactly. As, a, as as an example, Mark, I drive um, in my day job. I drive a metro bus around the city. I'm I'm, I'm a bus driver, and I so I've met many many homeless people, many drug induced people, many people who you would typically think of as being less than. And my viewpoint of it is, and you can help me here. My viewpoint of it is that this is the life that they chose. These are the decisions that they've made. It is not up to me to determine whether or not that's a good decision or a bad decision or be judgmental over it. That is their life. That's what they've got going on. And it may be feeding their soul as to where they need to be at that time. Am I, am I nuts or am I, is that kind of okay? Oh, I, th- I think you're, you're right on, on point. You know, I mean... It's really easy to say, oh, these homeless people, they're such a burden, they're such a problem. But what's that old uh, old proverb, but for the grace of God, go I? I mean, there's a exactly. lot of, yeah. And it's also to say that, oh, well, people go to prison. You know, let's, let's say your friend, okay, your friend uh, uh, who who acted out of mercy to take the life of his wife. Okay, only bad people go to prison. Well, what about Nelson Mandela? or Martin Luther King Jr., or Jesus. I mean, when you, you start, St. Francis of Assisi spent a year in, in a prison. Um, St. Nicholas, a.k.a. Santa Claus, uh, that, that's a whole talk uh, that I give on, on the mystical symbolism of Christmas. He was a very real person, and um, he was persecuted by the Romans for being a Christian and imprisoned. Uh, eventually released when they stopped persecuting uh, Christians. So there have been a lot of very spiritual, a lot of very good, a lot of very profound people throughout history who spent time in prison. Gandhi. I mean, God, the British were throwing Gandhi in and out of jail, I mean, all the time. So oh, yeah. very easy for us to look down on those that we do not understand. And this, once again, gets back into how Jesus raised the bar for us by not judging others. 
And once again, it is tough for all of us. It is, in, it is indeed. By the way, we've been talking with Mark Anthony. He's the psychic lawyer. He's going to hopefully um, check back for this uh, podcast again because he's going to be on here again because he, he, he really is. And we've just really, Mark, we've just grasped the surface of everything I'd like to talk about. But our time grows short. And what I'd like to do is to offer you a moment to talk directly to the audience about whatever it is you'd like them to know. Well, uh, I am on the Mark Anthony 2020 Visionary Tour. And I know a lot of people are saying 2020 Vision. And my manager, she said, Mark, call it the Mark Anthony 2020 Visionary Tour. And I said, I couldn't think of a better name myself um and that's the whole point is that i'm going to be uh, conducting spirit communication events also inspirational lectures um between you know, from florida all the way to washington state um we're also in discussions with a consciousness conference in in uh, mexico so if people want to find out and keep up to date to where i'm going to be near you kindly visit my website, evidenceofeternity.com. It's the same as my book, Evidence of Eternity. Sign up for the newsletter um, because that will keep you up to date. And I'm really excited about 2020. I think that this is going to be a year of great change. And I think that we're going to be looking at some really good developments in the field of, of medical technology. That, that's the feeling that I get. Um, we've been off to a rather scary start with this showdown with Iran, and I'm hoping that cooler, wiser heads will prevail because we don't, we don't really need to be pulling the trigger on this. And everybody knows that war is a terrible thing, but I've talked to some astronauts in, in my life. I've, I've had the pleasure to have met and, and spoken with John Glenn, with Neil Armstrong, with Buzz Aldrin, with Mike Foreman. And it's fascinating when you hear an astronaut say, you know, when you're orbiting the Earth and you look down and you see this big, beautiful blue and green and and you can just see the life on this planet, and then you realize that's the only place we have to live. And we have now progressed to the point where we can destroy all the life here. But call me an eternal and and hopeless optimist, but in my very fiber of my being, I believe we're not going to do it. I think that 2020 is going to be the start of of a consciousness that turns that around. So that's why we decided to call my 2020 tour the 2020 Visionary Tour. That's a that's a wonderful title. And when you're here, because you're going to be in Washington sometime in the September October time frame, I believe. And right. when you're yeah. here, we're going to meet. We're going to meet up, and we're going to do some live radio. Absolutely, I can't wait. Um, I mean, there's going to be a lot between now and then, and uh, I'm looking forward to all of it. And I always love going to Seattle. Um, it's it's just a beautiful city, and uh, the people there are are uh, really wonderful. Um, in fact, 
you know, one of the things I love about touring, Kevin, is people are people everywhere. Yeah, there's some regional differences, you know, and, and there's some things uh, that, that make us different on the surface. But when you get down to it, and I've been all over the world, I've been in, in the, the jungles in the Amazon. I've been at the you know the halls of the Kremlin. I've been you know in in uh, Buddhist temples in Japan. And when it comes down to it, people are people, and everybody wants to be able to live in a neighborhood where it's safe to walk the streets, come home to somebody who loves them, have a roof over their head, and not go to bed hungry. And when we start realizing that what unites us is more powerful than what separates us, I think we're going to be just fine. One of the, um, one of the things that this uh, podcast is, is about, and it's actually even in my opening, is that I, I honestly and truly believe that if we understood that we are all one, that we are all one creation, and we are all, of all from one God, that the knowledge of that would change everything. Yes, it would. And, you know, it comes down to um, what have every single one of the great spiritual teachers told us is that very thing. We're all brothers and sisters. I always like what Gandhi said, we're all the children of God, so why do you raise your hand against your brothers and sisters simply because they call God by another name? Exactly. Exactly. Again, ladies and gentlemen, we've been talking with Mark Anthony at the beginning of this interview. I said that that uh, I was really looking forward to it. I have not been disappointed. This is one of the best interviews I've ever done. He's the psychic lawyer. He's traveling around the country. Go to his website, evidenceofeternity.com. Find out where he's going and go talk to him. He is an extraordinary human being. And it's, Mark, it's been just a really pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Kevin. It's been fun uh, working with you, and I look forward to coming back. Absolutely, absolutely. So with that, we've got to go, And but uh, just remember, take care of each other, because each other is all we've got. We'll see you next time on My Independence Report. Hey, and thanks for listening to this episode all the way to the end. Hey, pretty cool. Hey, don't forget to follow us so you can receive regular updates and new posts. And remember, take care of each other because each other's all we've got. See you next time on My Independence Report.